0: Good morning, everyone. Before I get started on anything, there is a correction to be made on the bulletin. Uh, You'll see on the back it says Thursday, April the 5th, or 28th, pardon me, is Frog at our house, and it is at our house, but that should be on May the 5th, I believe. So it is at our house, um, just the date is in need of correction there. Good. All right. So I want to bring us all back up to speed in our series here. We are in 1 Timothy 4. Um, If you want to turn to there, and then you can stand once you've got it, and we're going to stand for the reading. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10 this morning. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And may God bless the reading of His Word. You can be seated. All right, so as we've gone along, uh, last week we looked at the first five verses uh, in this chapter. Uh, And we saw that the religious system that had made inroads into the church, and that was kind of corrupting uh, the way that the Christians in the Ephesian church here in Timothy's time, uh, that they were thinking was something called Gnosticism. Uh, And Gnosticism was uh, a Greek religion that was based on secret knowledge, on mystical experiences, um, and it it sought to remove itself from the physical world. So instead of the Christian message that involves the physical creation, uh, in Gnosticism you just try to escape the physical world. You try to get out of the world, whereas Christianity was concerned about stuff in this world, including our bodies and the future of the earth. Okay? Uh, and so the belief that the church is working through, that Paul has to remind Timothy of, uh, and that he's today going to exhort the brothers in the church, or the church as a whole, to be thinking about... Is this matter of you know escaping things uh, and how the Christian is to live in uh, the world, even in a fallen world okay um, so we saw last week some of the the good behavior Gnosticism was things about denying your physical body right denying marriage, denying certain food, denying drink, uh, doing all these things of self-denial because it's physical and it's wrong right and so the last act of salvation, is finally your soul being freed from the prison that is your body, whereas the Christian message has to do with resurrection of the body. Okay, so Paul works through all this with Timothy in the first couple verses here, uh, setting the Christian church on a different path than the prevailing religion that was around them. Okay, Uh, and so far from seeing death as a savior... Uh, Christianity saw death as an enemy which will ultimately be destroyed, which was destroyed by Christ at Easter, and which is going to be destroyed as Christ raises us to eternal life. And Christian obedience may well enjoy fasting for a certain period of time, but its basic practice is to affirm that creation is good, food is good, marriage is good, children are good, stuff is good. Uh, And that's where we are here. Uh, Now up to verse 6. And if you're following along here, you'll see in verse 6, it says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Okay, so these things. Well, what are these things? Uh, And these things, in one sense, is the whole content of the letter. Remember, chapter and verse divisions is something we did afterward to help us find spots in the Bible. Okay, it's not bad, but it's just the, the early church wouldn't have known about chapter and verse divisions. So these things refers to the whole content of Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, which is now in turn to be taught to the whole Ephesian church. Okay, So Timothy is uh, the minister here, uh, and so he is now being charged to take this to the brothers. Okay, uh, And likely what these things are... So in the one aspect, it's referring to the whole letter. In a more specific aspect, it's most likely referring to the things that we just read about. And now uh, Paul is reminding Timothy of those things. So the these things is likely what we covered last week, okay? So when the Gnostics around them are living an ascetic lifestyle, trying to remove themselves from the physical world, Christians are being reminded of how to work and to live in the physical world. How do we live in the world that God has put us in, Okay. Uh, And because the Greek religion was so widespread in the surrounding culture, it seemed inevitable that it was gaining traction in the church. And isn't that the way it still works today, right? As much as we want a pure church, what invariably ends up happening is we tend to track the ideas of the world in with us, right? And think of how that works. Uh, How long are we in church in a given week, right? How many hours are in a week? We work for 40 hours. We sleep for, you know, roughly the same. Think of how many hours there are, Uh, and do we honestly think that in one or two hours on Sunday morning we're going to correct all the faulty thinking that we spent seven days picking up right it's just inevitable that we tend to take some of this thinking into church with us and so we need to constantly be corrected and be guided by the word of God so that we don't start thinking uh, in ways that are contrary to scripture and this isn't a new problem it was here as well okay? The, the desire to, uh, it's called syncretism, when you try to take two religions and kind of merge them together, right? Can we, can we make Gnosticism work with Christianity? And the answer is no, but that doesn't mean some won't try. So Paul has warned Timothy about the teachers that are coming in and how they would depart from the faith. We saw that last week. But as we see now, this wasn't just background information for Timothy to just kind of know and, and keep note of and, and keep to himself. But he's now being told to take it to the brothers, right? And you see a take it to the brothers, which essentially means to the church as a whole. So Paul's concerned not only about Timothy's background knowledge, but about the, the holiness, the godliness, and the health of the church as a whole. So the points of the words of faith or the good doctrine that Timothy is following isn't just so that he can pass some kind of an examination before the theology board and keep his license to preach. This isn't just for that. The instruction is for godliness, and that's what Christian instruction always is. It's for godliness. It's not just so we can score debate points in our head uh, or just leave it there. Uh, Theology, when it's well done, needs to come out of our fingertips. It needs to shape the way we live, okay? And so uh, we need to edify each other, uh, and that starts in our minds, the church needs to be edified in the sound teaching of the word so that the lives and the practice will be uh, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately what we're here for, is to glorify God. Okay? And that includes our thinking, but that also includes the way we live our lives. Our goal, the reason God put us here, is to glorify him. Okay? And doctrine and practice are very closely tied. In fact, they're inevitably tied together. If you want to know what someone's theology is, just watch them live for a while. People, with time, get very consistent with the way uh, they think it does come out. So if somebody says one thing and lives another way, you know what they really believe is reflected in the way they're living, not in the way they're speaking. we, We do get consistent over time, and that's why the mind is so important. That's why doctrine is so important, is because it will get consistent. It will come out of your fingertips at some point. Okay, and we just saw that. So what we believe about creation dictates the way we treat things like marriage or food, as we just saw. It's often been said that the, the biggest distance in the Christian life is the 18 inches that separates our head from our heart. And isn't that the case? Isn't that often the problem? Right? We, we know something in our head. Uh, we want to believe it, but it's just so hard to, to really get it into our heart and to live that way, to be conformed to the image of God. It really is tough. It's easier to accept something intellectually than it is to put your trust in it and to start living that way, okay? Uh, And this is often the case. But the gospel of Jesus is for our heads as well as for our hearts. And we need to keep these two linked together. We should not try some kind of artificial separation, okay? Uh, And if you think, you know, we're, we're into theology at Trinity, we're into doctrine, we're into Bible preaching, and we want to say yes and amen to all of that. But we also want to be known as people who live accordingly. We want to be known as people who take this into our marriages and into our work and into our child rearing and into the way we interact with other people. We want to be people of the word, both in terms of how we think, how we talk, and how we act. That's ultimately what we're driving at. And so why is theology so important? Why is head knowledge so important? Well, I would say it's because the heart is the most important (laughs) That's why you preach to the head, in, because the heart is number one. Well, that sounds backwards, but it's not backwards at all. Think of your heart as like the engine that powers you. Your heart is what uh, just reflectively thinks about things, makes decisions. We do that with our heart. We do that with what we, what we sense is right or wrong, what our passions are, what our desires are. That's how we choose. Okay? But does an engine run without fuel? And the answer, of course not. Right? Our mind is the fuel tank. Our hearts will not keep running if there's no fuel. Okay? The, the fire runs out if there's not fuel. So reading the Bible, thinking through things, that's what goes in the head. That's the fuel tank that fuels the heart. Okay? So head and heart are tied together. They have to be. Okay? A heart that is inflamed with passion can only be inflamed with passion according to the truth. Right? In Romans, Paul's talking about his fellow Israelites. and He said, yeah, they have a lot of zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. It's nothing. It's just emotionalism. What what does Paul want? He wants zeal according to knowledge. He wants an overflow from the heart that's fueled by right thinking, that we can be conformed by the renewing of our minds. So the point of our learning isn't just so we know things. It's so that we can put this knowledge to the test, so we can put it in action because the final goal is godliness. The final goal is a godly life. And then in verse 7, we read, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Okay? And so here, godliness is contrasted with irreverent, silly myths. So you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. They're set apart from each other. The rather is clear that you'll, you'll either have this or you'll have that. Okay? You can't have godliness and irreverent, silly myths. Pick one. In the setting in Ephesus, we know that this had to do with the mystic experiences and the secret knowledge that were being offered by Gnosticism. But how might this apply today? Well, and of course, there's some very natural applications of this, but there's some we might not have thought about. So we discovered last week that this kind of Gnostic thinking has made several comebacks through history. You see it uh, deeply in the Middle Ages when people wanted to, again, remove themselves out of the world, go sit up on a pole... Uh, Anthony sat up on a pole for 60-some years and he just prayed and fasted, right? What a godly man. Um, And and you see this emphasis on getting people into uh, into the nunneries and into the monasteries, right? Forget marriage. Forget making money. Forget a career. Forget children. Spiritual people get out of the world, okay? That made a comeback in the Middle Ages and it's making a comeback today. It's deeply impacting many evangelical young kids as... Uh, as I mentioned last week. So this would be maybe the most obvious or the most directly connected to what uh, we see in this original context here, is this kind of mystical approach to Christianity, to to, to trying to be spiritual in that sense. Right? Uh, and so instead of seeing music, for example, in, in mysticism, you know, music is the, it's a, it's an expression of ourself. It's like I just can't contain it anymore, and so it's just got to come out of me. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a form of self-expression or overabundance of what's inside me. But the Bible treats music, and this is just one example, this applies everywhere, quite differently. If you read in Colossians 3.16, it talks about let the, the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Okay? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What, what's the power of music? It's not in my ability to just overflow with myself as a form of self-expression. Music is God's way of getting it into our bones. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the meaning behind music. Music is a carrier to get the truth into us through repetition. So it just comes out instinctively. Okay, And so worship, according to the biblical model, is God getting his truth into us and then as we sing it back to him. Okay, And that's a very different approach than the get people lathered up with a smoke machine until they just erupt into some kind of trance-like self-expression. It's a different approach. Okay? And, and this isn't a new thing. Again, this, this kind of thinking would have been uh, there. But there's another application that I think we can make in our own time that maybe doesn't seem quite as direct. Uh, and that has to do with people of, being people of truth in an age full of lies. Okay? And in one sense, God's people have always lived in an age of lies. When there's competing religions, we do live in an age of lies. And so this also isn't new for us. So it used to be called old wives' tales, or here it's called irreverent silly myths. We've sometimes called them wives' tales, although I'm guessing that word isn't allowed anymore. I'm guessing it's canceled, but I I don't know for sure. I'm just going out on the skinny branches here. Okay, Uh, how does that manifest itself today? Well, probably in many ways, right? catchphrases become popular, right? People just kind of reflectively recite a phrase without thinking about what they're saying, okay? Uh, We live in an age of memes, and don't get me wrong, I love dank memes as much as anyone, but uh, they can short-circuit our ability to think, right? Because it's just trying to summarize something into one little picture, one clever little saying, Uh, and it doesn't help us to think critically, uh, even the good ones, which, frankly, some of them are quite good and funny. So I'm not speaking... Uh, against uh, everything that's happening. It's just We need to be, uh, think critically about it. We need to think our way through these things. Okay? Many of our traditional sources of information and authority have become highly politicized. And this is true no matter where you are on the political spectrum. Okay? If we're honest, this is happening everywhere. Uh, everything is being politicized and polarized. Okay? And that's causing us as a society to move towards groupthink Okay? Uh, or various conspiracy theories, right? Every side has a, has a, a conspiracy-style explanation for what the other side is doing, right? It, it's as though uh, human behavior can't be accounted for by just being human behavior. There has to be some kind of billionaire cartel behind it, right, and then, just depending on your political uh, leanings, well, who's the billionaire in your camp, right? you got. Are you on Team Bezos or are you on Team Musk, right? Who's your billionaire that's backing your view, okay? Uh, and that might be an interesting discussion, but we're, we're moving into unhealthy territory because neither of these men uh, or these explanations are champions of the church, for example. Right? We want to be people of truth in an age of lies, in the lie, or in an age of different theories and wives' tales and irreverent silly myths. So as Christians, we know, or we should know, that something doesn't have to be part of some kind of elaborate secret scheme in order for it to be a bad idea, right? We talked a bit about that this morning in Sunday school. Do you need a Bible verse that directly connects something and says, well, here's the mark of the beast, or here's this bad idea? Do we have to know that to say, just based on biblical wisdom, that something is a bad idea, right? And we can know from biblical wisdom, something may very well be a terrible idea, and it's never mentioned in Revelation or in Daniel or anywhere else. We just know through biblical wisdom this is a bad idea and it can be rejected on that basis. Okay? We don't have to uh, take a fanciful interpretation of things in order to know that something is ungodly. We just know with biblical wisdom. Okay? And scripture is also clear that there are always prevailing ideas in any society, in any culture. There's prevailing ideas and attitudes that are floating around in the air... And if you're in that environment, they start to seem natural. Okay? Just like a fish doesn't know that it's in water, right? because that's all it's ever known. It just lives in water. That's just life to a fish. Right? And we are the same way. Everything around us starts to feel natural. It starts to feel normal because that's all we've ever known. Okay? All I've known is this continent for the last 40 years. That's all I know. So if I wouldn't know better, if the Bible can't take me outside of myself and my experiences, I might be guilty of the terrible crime of thinking that I live in normal times and I do not live in normal times neither do you okay so we need to be conformed in our thinking to the word of God to be educated in the right kind of way Uh, I think it was Chesterton who said that that the, the main point of education is so that we never become guilty of the terrible crime of taking educated people seriously okay that's why you need an education so you don't take educated people seriously Okay, uh, we need to think like Christians. We need to think like Christians all the way down. We need to be tough-minded. So when we encounter bad ideas in our society, uh, we should think critically. Well, how did this idea get here? How did this idea even get legs? And where is this idea going? Okay, where is it going in the future? Because ideas have consequences. And we've been trying to talk a fair bit about this kind of stuff in our Men's Theology Night. How did this idea get there? Okay, uh, Just this week, actually, I was listening to Alistair Begg when I was doing some business in the city, uh, and he was talking about uh, this whole transgender business. And he was talking about the early 1910s. Okay, the 1910s. 110 years ago is when these ideas were born. Okay, people like Sigmund Freud said, well, maybe there's not two genders. Maybe we're on a spectrum, and there's a certain amount of masculinity and femininity in every person. Okay? And if you live in 1910, you go, ha, 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 that'll never take off. <laughs> what, what a stupid idea. Right? And here we are 110 years later, bearing the fruit of that idea. It didn't just show up out of nowhere. Okay? This was an idea that had an origin, and it's also continuing to go someplace. And that's like that with all ideas, not just these ones. Ideas have consequences, and we need to think this through, because we want to be people of the truth. Okay? So this means that we have to be critical and tough-minded in our thinking about the spirit of our own age so we can understand it in terms of what the Bible calls unbelief or the mind being a slave to sin, and we don't need to push conspiracy theories. right? If, if, if all our problems in the world are the, the cause of six billionaires and their secret meetings and their powerful stuff, uh, we actually short-circuit wisdom in a few ways. One, the problem is just people then, right? and if we, if we can get rid of those six people, our problem is over right? Nothing more to do. Well, we're not... Of course, that's not real, because those ideas uh, are all around us. We have to do more thinking than just say, well, if we could just get rid of the World Economic Forum, then, then we're good to go. We're not good to go. These ideas gain traction because they're everywhere. They're everywhere around us, okay? So we need to reject conspiracy theories, irreverent silly myths. A much more biblical way to think about the spirit of the age uh you maybe have heard the term it's a german phrase it's called the zeitgeist which literally translated i guess would be the time ghost are you thinking about the time ghost of your time right the spirit of the age what's the prevailing attitude right if it's gnosticism in the first century church what are the prevailing ideas that just start to seem natural in our own time okay and if you start thinking in those terms the history of ideas where did it come from where's it going it sounds like cotton i joke but i will not uh, sing that <laughs> Uh, if, if we're thinking in those terms, there's much more work to do because that means we need to apply biblical wisdom everywhere. Okay? The conspiracy theory route is, is the easy way out. Our job is bigger than that. And we need, uh, we need to think critically too because the problem with some of these irreverent silly myths, conspiracy theories, old wives' tales, whatever you want to call it, is that there's a certain adrenaline rush that comes with trying to probe into things that we can't prove or disprove. It's just a theory. We don't know. What we do know, what we know with certainty, is what the Word of God says. And that needs to be what shapes our thinking. And then we apply that test to what's around us. We don't need some kind of uh, secret knowledge, just because it's not in the Gnostic direction, just because it's in more in a conservative direction, or, or what we're inclined to do, doesn't make it right. We need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We need to think about things like Christians. Okay? And so then we don't need elaborate theories. We just know that anything that is at odds with God's view of reality is a bad idea. Okay? So, depending on how we're wired, we're prone to sin in one of two ways with this kind of stuff, as I've already mentioned. One way would be to assume that whatever we're used to is normal, natural, and obvious. Right? Well, I grew up with this. It's, it's obvious that it's this way. Maybe not. Okay? Okay? So that would be a sin of intellectual laziness is just assuming that what you're used to uh, is okay or that it's normal or that it's obvious, okay? Another way we can sin this way is assuming that bad ideas have to be accounted for with some kind of backdoor knowledge, some kind of irreverent silly myth is the way we account for these things. But as I mentioned, most of the time, these ideas that we're bearing the fruit of today did originate from highly intelligent people, and it was no conspiracy. They wrote it in some academic journal. Okay? They wrote it for the university. It's not a, it's not a conspiracy. It's out in the open. Okay? And people take these ideas and they start to become the prevailing myth of a culture. And so what we see today isn't some kind of backdoor thing. It is the fruit of ideas that were hatched 100, 200, 300 years ago. Okay? We don't need an arcane theory. Just think through Uh, what is being said what's being proposed we want to love God with all our hearts all our minds and all our strength and so we have to be clear and tough about the way we think through our sliver of time if we're going to be disciplined godly and committed to the truth that means that we have to reject lies in whatever form they come okay including the lies that might seem appealing to us right I wish that was true I wish it was Uh, but maybe it's not just because it's helpful doesn't mean you embrace it, or doesn't mean it's true. We need to think like Christians all the way down. We need to train ourselves for godliness. Okay, and we move into the language here of training. Training gives the picture of hard work. There's no shortcuts in training. Okay, there's no easy way out. There's no pill you can take uh, to make you an incredible hockey player, okay, for example. And there's no shortcut to a productive, godly Christian life either. It takes discipline, determination, grit, okay? The Christian life is hard work. Thinking like a Christian is hard work. Talking like a Christian is hard work. And living like a Christian is hard work. And there are no shortcuts, okay? A goal worth pursuing is worth the effort, okay? And we all do this, right? We all have things that we cherish and that we think are important. There was one point in time before I had a family family Uh, Before I had a dairy farm where I was taking my golf game quite seriously, and I hope to again one day. But it was hard work, right? I played varsity golf in Oregon, and Mr. Sutton had us practicing on the driving range until we were fed up and we wanted to quit golf and our hands were bleeding. Uh, But you're not going to get better if you don't put the work in, right? You won't get better if you don't put the work in. Why would we think that our spiritual lives will just somehow, that we're just going to put sin to death and grow in godliness? Uh, with the shortcut. It doesn't work that way with anything in life. Anything that is worth doing is worth the effort. It's worth the training. It's worth the self-discipline. In verse 8, it says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, and some of the analogies are common themes in Scripture. There's many farming analogies in Scripture, but there's also many athletic analogies that are used in Scripture. Okay, and so at this time, again, what was the peak of athletic performance in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, uh, was the Olympics, right? We still have the Olympics today. They were resurrected in the 1800s, I believe. But the Olympics are an old, old expression of athletic performance. Okay? And in this time, runners would have started practicing for marathons months ahead of time. Often, sometimes almost a year ahead of time. They would quit their vocation in order to just train for the marathon or for whatever event they were going to, uh, to enter into. And so everything in their life revolved around them training for this thing because winning the marathon is a goal that was seen to be worthwhile. Okay? And once you see the goal is worthwhile, you're willing to put in the work. So a year ahead everything about your eating, about your sleeping, and your exercise would all revolve around accomplishing this goal. Okay? And then one month before the competition, the athlete would be enrolled into a gymnasium for special kind of final training. This is kind of the finished carpentry of their task, is this last month. And they would start rising early in the morning, and they would go through long, rigorous training sessions. Okay? Uh, and you, you can picture, and you see this even today, people that are, are training athletically, they push themselves to the point of failure until they collapse, and their lungs are gasping for air. And then once you catch your breath, you get up and do it again. Why? Because the Super Bowl is worth it. The Stanley Cup is worth it. Okay? Winning the Masters is worth it. If you see the goal is worth it, you're going to put in the work. You will. Your lungs are worth collapsing and gasping okay, it's willing to push your muscles until they just outright fail on you, and these competitions in training for the Olympics uh, were called agons, from which we get our word agony, okay, the training is not glorious, the training is not glorious, the prize at the end is glorious, but the training is hard work, they would enter these agons, and they would push themselves to the point of collapse, the point of failure, and that's why we have the word agony in our, uh, in our vocabulary today, Who in their right mind, you know, would I be in my right mind if I'm going up against people who have been training for a year and they're eating, they're sleeping, everything, their training had been revolved around winning this contest and I show up 30 pounds overweight and the most I ran was to get a heifer out of the pen, right, in the last two months. uh, Would I be in my right mind to think I belong here? I don't. I don't belong there. I'm going to embarrass myself. I may even hurt myself, because I haven't put in the discipline, I haven't put in the work to be ready for this. Okay? And no undisciplined Christian life is going to succeed any better than the overweight smoker showing up for a marathon race. The word discipline comes to us in English through the same way, actually, through the same channel that the word gymnasium does. Okay? Uh, and gymnasium, uh, strictly defined, actually means to train naked. Think about that next time you go to a gym. Thankfully, some of the customs have dropped off. But the picture uh, here of a gymnasium and of this training analogy is that there's no, uh, there's no hindrances on you. You're naked so that you can focus just on what your body needs to do. You go behind closed doors and you train and you sweat it out. No hindrances, nothing in your way. Just train, push yourself. Okay? The image of hard work and self-control are very clear. So the word training here is also, the the tense in the Greek is that it's in the present tense and in the active tense. Okay, so this doesn't mean you trained back there and now you're good to go. It's an ongoing practice. Okay, it's not a one and done, it's a lifestyle commitment. And working out our spiritual lives works the exact same way. Nobody is going to train for you. Nobody can get you in shape other than you. You're the one who has to put in the work. You're the one who has to go to the gym. You're the one who has to eat healthy. You're the one who has to quit the junk food stuff. Okay? And how might this look? Well, for many of us, this should involve a healthy diet of Bible reading. Do you think you're going to grow in knowledge if you're not in God's Word? And I'll give you a hint. You will not. You will not. If you're not disciplined enough to read your Bible, don't expect any progress. You're not going to get it. It's not going to happen okay do you think you're going to grow in maturity if you're not in church with other believers if sunday morning gathering with god's people and singing praise to him and and listening to the word and praying together and then fellowshipping together afterward if that's not a weekly priority are you going to grow you won't no you won't okay don't kid yourself you'll grow cold and every time you skip it'll be easier to skip the next time Okay? Lack of discipline also feeds itself. We have to be with God's people on God's day, and it has to be a priority, just like your Bible reading does. Okay? And you know how this works. If you're gonna, uh, what happens if you save your leftover money? You save nothing. Why? Because there is never leftover money. The money finds things that are important, and you end up saving nothing. What are you going to do if your Bible reading is going to happen when you get to it, when you've got time? There will never be time. I promise you. If you don't have the discipline to make time, you will not find time, okay? If coming here on Sunday morning or whichever church is your home church, if that's not a priority, if you're going to do that when it works, it will work less and less and less because there's always something more important than church on Sunday morning. What about devotions as a family and parents and especially dads? This is for us. Is this a priority? Are we making sure that our eating schedule, or maybe our waking up schedule, or our bedtime routine with smaller kids, are we making sure that that revolves around getting devotions as a family done? Okay, because if we're going to do devotions when it works, again, I promise you, it will never work. Never. Okay, it won't. We have to build these things in. Just like saving money has to be the first money in, Okay? So your time with God, your prayer life, your devotional life, your church attendance, it has to be the first fruits. Okay? And you see that pattern in the Old Testament. If it's not a priority, if you don't make it happen, don't expect it to happen for you. Okay? You will not exceedingly rare find yourself by accident that everyone is sitting around the table in complete silence and we've all got 20 minutes to do devotions. If it's not a priority, it's not going to happen. There is no shortcut. There's no pill you can take to become a mature Christian, okay? And we probably can all think of ourselves or others uh, who are spiritual couch potatoes, okay? But you don't want to be the spiritual picture of the guy who's laid out on the couch with Pringles all over your undershirt. You don't want to be the spiritual equivalent of that guy. There's no glory in that now, and there's no glory in that in the future, because it's not going anywhere, okay? Okay? And if you live that life, you will soon find that discipline is actually inevitable. Either we put in the work and we go through self-discipline, self-training, making use of the things that God has given us to strengthen us and to nourish us, or our lack of discipline is going to turn into hard discipline from the outside. Taking the easy road comes at a heavy, heavy cost because it often ends up being met with a much harder challenge. If you're not willing to put in the work into your marriage, how much energy do you have to watch it flame out, okay? If you're not willing to put the work into training your children spiritually, how much energy are you going to have to pray for their wayward souls after they've gotten into deep trouble, okay? The way of ease ends up being a lot of work. I sometimes joke people make fun of me for tackling things somewhat aggressively, and I tend to, but I always say I'm far too lazy to procrastinate, okay? If I don't have time to do it today, I know I'm not going to get to it tomorrow. Okay? So I just know, uh, why put off to tomorrow something you can do today? Why start Bible reading as a family next week? Start it today. Okay? Do it today. Make it a priority now and show everyone in your home this is a priority. This has to happen. Mom and dad have to read the Bible to you guys. We have to pray together as a family. We have to talk about spiritual things because it's not going to happen on its own. The easy path comes at a heavy cost and the cost will get heavier and heavier and heavier as you go down that road. It's always cheaper and more rewarding to pay the price up front. Dealing with a broken family or wayward children or a spiritual life that has not been nourished for years or months ends up being far harder than making the commitment required today. So, we need to make sure that we're talking about these things and we're prioritizing them uh, in our families. Okay? And, and in the instance of Bible reading, you probably won't find somebody who's a much slower reader than I am. I enjoy reading, but I'm a very slow reader. In 15 minutes a day, I can get through the Bible every single year. So can you. Okay? I promise you, you don't read slower than I do. Okay? Now, think about that. A 15-minute chunk of your day, and this is just one example. This applies to all these things. If we're honest... How are we going to answer the Lord about those 15-minute chunks of time that could get us through his entire word in a year? Just think of one day. How many 15-minute chunks of time do we waste on Wordle or Sudoku or YouTube or TikTok or Facebook? How many 15-minute chunks do you destroy every day with no return on it? How often do I do that? How are we going to answer to the Lord about that? Oh, I didn't have time to read the Bible. Well, you sure had plenty of time for Sudoku, for Facebook, for Twitter. You had time for that, right? Why? Because that was a priority. That's important. Your spiritual discipline isn't so important. How do we answer for that? And that doesn't mean these other things are wrong. I do many of those things. They're not wrong. It's how do we prioritize? What do our habits, what do my habits say about the level of discipline and what our hearts are training for. What we seem is a worthwhile prize that's worth putting the effort into. If we rightly place so much emphasis on training for a sport, how much more value is in training for eternity with the Lord Jesus? Our training program, whatever it looks like, shows us and everyone around us what the disposition of our heart is. Our schedule, our spending habits, the books that we find worth reading, the things that we find worth putting in our earbuds, the overflow of what we talk about, they all tell the story of what you're training for, of the prize that you think is worthwhile. And if you're not training for godliness, it's because you don't treasure Christ for who he is. He is the jewel of all creation. Eternity with him is worth training for. The promises of God here apply both to this life and to the next life. And this is why training for godliness is so valuable. It will be rewarding in this life if we put the effort into our vocation, our families, our churches, and our relationships, because God's laws ultimately are good for us, even now, even temporally. But these efforts also go on ahead of us for reward uh, when we enter kingdom come, when we enter into glory, okay? And and so you can see this. Again, if we use the athletic training analogy, uh, I haven't won the Masters, and I never will, okay? I know that, but... Can I be happy? Can I see some kind of growth and some kind of satisfaction, even apart from winning the ultimate prize? Can I be happy that if I'm putting the work in, uh, suddenly my slice is straightened out? Can we be happy with seeing intermediate progress? And of course we can be, right? God's laws are good for us, not just to get us into heaven, but they're good now. There's a reward now that we can see. Okay, God's laws are not to kill our joy, they are to provide us joy. Okay, And, and think of a kite, right? A kite, if it's just left free flowing and there's no discipline there's nothing holding it to the ground it's going to crash right what keeps that kite flowing is that it's grounded to something there's some kind of discipline there's an external restraint on it and that's good for flying a kite and the same is true for us god's laws are to keep us grounded they're not to kill our joy they are to provide us our joy And then in verse 9, it says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And we've seen this language many times already just in this short little book of First Timothy about these sayings that are trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. That's these little creeds or these little confessions that we've come across along the way. So in First 1 Timothy 1.15, we read that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then in 1 Timothy 3.1, we read, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And you see it again in 2 Timothy 2.11-13, 2, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, who, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then in another pastoral epistle, not in Timothy, but when Paul is writing to another young pastor named Titus, in Titus 3 8, it says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Okay, and so every time we encounter one of these sayings where Paul says, You know, the, trustworthy, the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance, he's taking a phrase or a something you know a song whatever that would have been familiar to the people and he says this is good now let me push that nail all the way in let me drive it all the way in and that you can see that this is true and this is good and this is right and so verse 9 refers back to what we've already just said or what Paul's already said in verses 7 and 8 the truths that we just saw about discipline and training are well known and deserving of full acceptance and so that means, if it's for full acceptance, and we were told that Timothy's supposed to take this to the church, that means spiritual discipline is not just for the most elite 25% of the church. Okay? It's not just for the people who are involved in public ministry. It's not just for people who are involved in leading singing or teaching kids. Okay? These disciplines are for the whole church. They're for you. They're for you. Okay? This saying is trustworthy and full acceptance for... And then put your name in there. It's for you. Everyone who is saved is entered into this training contest. Okay? Into this training program to get us ready for this contest. And the discipline is mandatory for everyone. If your heart has been made new, you will see the glory of spending eternity with Christ. And you will see that the training regimen is worth it. Okay? A lack of discipline leads only to destruction and heartbreak. Okay? And you know it. Everyone knows it. If you've put yourself into something, yes, it's hard work. Yes, it takes time from other stuff. But you've been rewarded. And then just think about those areas of your life which you have neglected. And you've taken the easy way out. And you've suddenly seen that the cost of the easy way is too much. It's heavy. Okay? This is true. It's worthy of full acceptance. in verse 10, it says, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, and so the word end here, uh, it doesn't mean finish or stop, right, an end just means um, a purpose, what's the end of this thing, right? and the means justify the end, it's the, the the final purpose, or the final outcome, and so in one Famous catechism, the first question is, What is the chief end of man? We're not saying what's man's final stopping point, we're saying what's the chief purpose of man. Okay, that's what the word end means. Uh, and the this refers back to the promise in verse 8 about our training being both valuable now and into eternity. And when you can see the finish line, you're willing to push through the last bits of fatigue that are telling your body to stop, right? And the further you are in this race, the more your body is screaming at you, stop. Just give it up. Quit. Quit now. It's too hard, right? Uh, But when you see the finish line, when you see a vision of Christ and his glory and what eternity holds for us, of course you're going to push through that last little bit. Uh, You're going to push through the failure because it's worth it. And that's what the rebirth does. That's what the new birth does. It gives us new heart, new eyes, new ears, so that everything looks different. And we do what we can, we will, with the Spirit's power push through the point of failure, and get this thing done. When we see the finish line, we're able to push through. Training to the point of this failure takes determination, okay? and nobody does it because it's fun. Okay? It's not fun to keep bench pressing until there's a bar with a couple hundred pounds crushing your chest. Okay? It's not fun taking shots at the driving range until there's calluses on your hands and you hate it. But doing the inglorious work of discipling, disciplining ourselves, and training a young child, it's not easy, but it is clearly worth it. The reason we do these things is because we can see through the thing to the end which we are headed, okay? And that's why we need that clear vision. That's why uh, people who have not been born again can't see it. It looks like it's a futile race because they don't have eyes to see what we're pushing for, what we're training for. The rebirth is essential to this for us to see that this is worth it and prioritize our lives accordingly. We need the Holy Spirit to even help us to see that this is worth it. Okay? The Christian life is not worth it if we're not able to envision the dazzling glory of Christ and who he is, what he has done, and our eternity with him. But if we don't see that, the fruit will be to eventually drop out of the race as we saw at the beginning of this chapter. When we see the living God for who he is, we have the energy to push ourselves through the pain and keep taking the next step. We need to zoom out of ourselves and our circumstances far enough that we can see the big picture. Who is God? What am I here for? What is the world for? What's redemption for? Okay, it's not just to get out of here so I can go to heaven when I die. It's it's material. It's this worldly. It involves training in this life, and it involves a new creation with Christ in uncorrupted uh, glory forever. It's worth it. It's so worth it. And God gives us tools, the means of grace, things that He puts in our hands, everyday common things to help build us up, to include in this training regimen, right? And some of these things. This isn't exhaustive, but prayer, of course, is part of it. I already mentioned Bible reading. And church attendance, these things aren't to be approached as, oh, I guess we have to do it to check it off a list. These are part of the training regimen that God puts you in to fight the good fight, to keep running the race. And an up-close application for those of us here this morning, unique to Trinity. Because this church is new for all of us, there is a unique corporate element for all of us to play in this. Planting a church comes at a big cost. And it's a worthwhile one. Coming into a new church where we maybe don't know everybody or some things are unfamiliar is a big project. It's a big cost for you. Okay? And the carnal response would be to get frustrated or bitter or sad maybe about the things that led up to this point or why we got here, why, why did things go the way they did. Right? If we're looking back... The flesh might think to be frustrated, or angry, or to get bitter, or to focus on what's behind us. But as we've seen, we have to keep looking at what lies ahead. Okay. All those emotions are understandable, but feeding them ultimately does us no good. None of them are going to train us for godliness. To grow in godliness, we have to look ahead to see what's in front of us. And we have to help encourage and push each other through... Right? When your training partner is at the point of failure, you help get the bar off his chest. Okay? You bark at him until he does finish the last couple hundred feet of that race. That's why we train together. That's why people train for sports together, to push each other through. When one guy wants to give up, the next guy is there to say, no, no, you can do it. One more rep. One more rep. And of course, you're tricking him because when he does that one, you're going to tell him to do one more. <laughs> right? That's how this works. Keep pushing yourself to do the next thing. None of this is going to be possible if we're not gripped by a vision of the living God. We need that in our personal devotional lives and we need that at Trinity Fellowship. We need to be gripped by a vision of the living God or else this is going to fail. And When we see that living God, when we see that eternity is worth it, this means that we need to look ahead with positivity, determination, and enthusiasm that eternity with Christ is, in fact, worth it. We want to be known in this church as kingdom people. We want Trinity people to be known as joyful people, disciplined people. And that's part of the culture that all of us need to be building here with our actions and with the way we talk and encourage with each other because we need to keep pressing ourselves into the kingdom. There's a little turn of phrase here. It's not the main point of the message, so I won't spend much time on it. But you may wonder about this phrase here. Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. We've seen some of this language earlier. Is this one of those passages that teaches universal salvation, that all people are ultimately saved, right? The Savior of all people. We already looked at the all language of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6, and you can go back and look at that. Listen to that again if you want. All people often refers to all kinds of people, not to every last person who has ever lived, right? And and we, we continue to use language that way. Think of the phrase all the time means all kinds of time. It doesn't mean every second of every day of every year you're doing something. It just might mean you're doing it all the time. All kinds of times. Sometimes I do it in the morning, sometimes I do it in the evening, sometimes in January, sometimes in November. Okay? All can often mean all without distinction, not all without exception. Further, the way the word is translated here, especially, can be translated as particularly or specifically or That is to say. So, a paraphrase here might be God, who is the Savior of all people, that is, of those who believe. Okay? So, again, this isn't a passage that teaches universal salvation. However, there is also a sense in which God's grace and His kindness is universal, even to unbelievers. Okay? This is called common grace. God gives grace often to unbelievers. And He does this through all kinds of ways. As wicked as the world is through its history, in that, through that, God is always restraining evil. Think of any historical atrocity that has been. Could it have been worse if God not restrained it? Yes, it could have been, okay? God's grace is at work in restraining evil, even in a fallen world, and that's God's grace to all of creation, not just to believers, okay? Unbelievers are enabled to some degree, even though they don't account for where this comes from, but even unbelievers can enjoy beauty, they can enjoy creation, they love their children. That's common grace. They don't deserve those things, but God is kind and he gives that anyway. He gives us what we need. Okay? Such as when Jesus says that it will rain on the just and on the unjust. Okay? Do unbelieving farmers need a stretch of dry weather just as bad as believing farmers do? Yes, they do. Is the weather that we get here going to be the same for believers and unbelievers? Yes, it will. Okay? God is kind to all his creation. And lastly... He sends out the gospel invitation to all people. Okay? Even those who are ultimately determined to resist the gospel message. But even the fact that they are invited is an act of grace from God. So in these ways, there is a kind of redemption in grace that is general to creation, even though saving grace is specifically for those who believe. So this is not teaching universal salvation. And I'll maybe just leave it there, because that's not the main point here this morning. But I'll ask you, where are you at this morning? Where are you at this morning? If you look at your time budget, look at your financial budget, look at the things you've talked about this week, where are you at? What's important? What's important for me? What's important for you? Let's think about that. Are we spiritual couch potatoes living on cotton candy hoping to get to the next meal that also will not satisfy? Because we have no vision for what Christ has done, who he is? If you're that guy, get a vision of that. Ask for God to show you who he is. Ask him that his word would become living and active like a two-edged sword that it is, so that you will press on. And if you are a spiritual athlete, and you are disciplining yourself, and you are pushing yourself, and you are doing these things, you are putting in the work to be a Christian in your family, and in your work, and in your relationships, and in your church involvement then I want to encourage you, keep looking to the prize. Keep doing one more rep. When you think you're about to fail, keep pushing one more, because God's Spirit is at work in and through all these things. And with that, I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you are kind to us. Lord, and I thank you even that you have put us into uh, the training program of Spiritual Discipline. Lord, you encourage us and then you give us the tools we need to do the training, to put in the work, and you give us a picture of who you are and what eternity is like so we can keep pushing through, we can see the prize that we're pushing for. Lord, and I pray for each person here, Lord, if they do not know you, if they have not been born again, if they don't have a heart and eyes to see these things, Lord, then I pray that your spirit would come upon them. Take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Lord, give them eyes to see that you are the crown of creation. It is worth it. Lord, and then give them the tools and the strength they need to keep a life of discipline. Lord, and for those who do see you for who you are, who are putting in the work, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would find other people to encourage us to push out one more rep, to keep pushing, to get up off the ground and do another lap. Lord, use each person here to create a culture in their families, in their workplace. And Lord, we ask, especially as we want to be stewards of Trinity Fellowship, that that work would be happening here, that we would be known as people of the truth, people of godliness, people of self-discipline, people whose marriages want to be emulated by those around us. Lord, give us the vision, give us the strength, give us the energy. Lord, we trust ourselves to you. and We thank you for your kindness to us. Amen. So, the charge is this. Discipline is inevitable. Either it will come in the form of external pressure from God, from those around us, and from the consequences of careless living, or it will come in the form of self-discipline and training. Discipline and training for godliness yields a life of blessing for both now and eternity. Lack of discipline and training yields a life of hardship and destruction for both now and eternity. This week, focus on what your purpose is for both this life and the next. When you see that the only worthy purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, you will catch a fresh vision of the reward ahead. Keep your eyes on this as you push through the difficulty and train yourself for godliness. And I'll leave you with the benediction from Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Go in peace.